Hello and welcome to Review, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. This is another episode of Rearview on Tour, which is brought to you in association with Mercedes-Benz Vans. I'm delighted to be joined by James Cameron, the founder and CEO of Mission Motorsport. Welcome to Rearview, James. I'd like to start off by asking, what is Mission Motorsport and what does the CEO do? Well, what is Mission Motorsport is an easy thing to answer. Um, We're the Forces Motorsport Charity, uh, and we exist in order to help uh, those leaving the services to find... um, uh, ultimately, um, a bit of salvation through through sport, and there's a particular area of sport that we're interested in, which is which is motorsport, things with an engine attached. Um, we do that in three ways. We've got a sports program that delivers a, a recovery sport program that's that's uh, you know supported by Help for Heroes um, that you see popping up at things like you know the Invictus Games, the new Invictus Games racing that's just launched. Uh, but we've got a training piece that sits behind that. Uh, that's delivering qualifications and real practical experience, insights into industry, uh, to enable the third pillar, which is vocation, and that's to help put service leavers into jobs. Um, Now, service leavers and veterans are a big audience, so we focus on those who are most in need, and traditionally that's those who are wounded, injured and sick, Mm -hmm. but also it's those who've kind of found themselves who've fallen by the wayside, who've struggled with that transition between uh, military and, and civilian life. Uh, so what's the role of the CEO? Uh, well, that's a slightly more difficult question to answer. <laughs> I think my job really is, is, to, is to make all of that happen um, and to, uh, to steer the organisation um, so that it can, it can realise its aims in, in, in support of those beneficiaries. Now, right at the very beginning, I think that was me practically loading trailers, very hands-on, doing everything. Uh, nowadays, I'm, I'm much more... Uh, with a, uh, a sort of parachute view, looking down on all of the great work that Mission Motorsports is doing and ensuring that we uh, continue to do things in the right way for the right reasons and for those core, really heartfelt reasons that the charity was formed in the first place. Making sure that, that doesn't, you're not moving away from that. Yeah, and it's uh, as things grow, um, as anybody who started a business which has grown will tell you, um, uh, there are... There are sort of growth pains that you go through, I think. And um, uh, Mission Motorsport started as an entirely volunteer-driven activity um, that was born out of a desire to help those who'd been hurt on operations. And, um, uh, you know, now as the Forces Motorsport charity with formal roles to defence, a formal function in support of things like Invictus Games, racing, running the... um, uh, elements of people's armed forces engagement programs for big slices of industry um, it would be easy for some of those core heartfelt reasons to perhaps be lost slightly in translation mm. um, and and really it's it's kind of my job to to ensure that 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 doesn't happen and that we uh, we maintain the focus of the organization despite all of those things that, that go on around you that uh, that that might pressure you to to slant things in a certain way whether that's Commercial, or whether it's scale, or whether it's the own, the charity's own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I ever wanted to do was was to start another bloody service charity. Um, it was very much my opinion there was too many of them. They were um, overlapping. It wasn't clear who had responsibility for doing which bit of what, and that really frustrated me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I very much saw that there was. 
it frustrated me that there was a gap. I thought that there was an element of duty of care that was being missed by an area of great opportunity that particularly wounded, injured and sick guys were getting drawn into um, without any form of the Ministry of Defence having any sort of oversight over it or professional opinion about what was good, what was bad, what was in their best interest or what wasn't. Um, and so I had complained about it to, uh, to a sufficient degree back in 2011 to be ordered to write a paper for, for MOD about how motorsport could be brought on as one of the recovery sports mm-hmm. and, uh, and make sure that best practice was, was captured uh, and that there was something there. There was a supporting structure to enable both servicemen and women and veterans to be able to get some help to access a sport which is incredibly exciting and mm. vibrant and, uh, uh, and fun and therefore something which had a lot to offer them particularly because there was a big industry sat behind it that's yeah. desperate for people of quality. Um, and it was just really a matter of sort of trying to, trying to join those two up. So that's how it started back in, back in the first intra- instance. And it's, it's grown to, to a great deal since. But it's, a, um, it's an interesting job. People tend to sort of see the shiny bits of it normally, and it's my own fault because... You know, social media is a lie, isn't it? You know, you show those... You, you don't see that. Don't it is, it is. Because, you, you know, you will show the, the snap and all the rest of it, the cool things, and I, you know, I'm really proud of what I see blokes doing and all the rest of it, so, you know, you'll, you'll share stuff, which is incredible, getting to do really cool things, introducing people to great stuff, and then celebrating in their triumphs. What you don't share on social media is the is the late nights and the, you know, hours of um, <coughs> crafting PowerPoint for presentations or spending time on trains in and out of London going into interminable meetings or on the motorways, you know, um, as you craft and develop those links which enable um, uh, guys who don't have our networking ability to access the incredible networks the charity has. Mm-hmm. That takes effort, it takes legwork and it takes real determination and and grit to stay on top of it and it's and it's not just me anymore you know there, there's a whole team of people you know 15 on staff now and with that comes comes a lot of responsibility in making sure that the lights stay on at the end of the day and that we meet their pension requirements and their needs of families and, and all the yeah. rest of it so yeah that's uh, uh that's that's quite a different beast to what it was back in 2012 you know entirely voluntary sort of thing with people doing stuff in their spare time with their spare kit now it's uh, it's a much much larger and more professional organisation, and with all of the with all of the responsibilities that that comes with. Right, I'm going to do what I always do, which is go back in the mists of time. Oh God! Because I get the feeling you quite like a car. <laughs> yeah. When, do you know when that started? Was it? Was it? Uh, is there regaling around the family fire, um, laughing at how you pointed at all the cars in the pram and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, no, I, I think so. There, there was a. <laughs> Twitter's an amazing thing. Having just lambasted um, social media for not being accurate, it also is desperately accurate because it, it really shows up people for their high levels of nerdism. <laughs> and there, were, there was just a lovely conversation on Twitter yesterday which was reminiscing um, about uh, people's dad's company cars back in the 70s. And it started with someone talking about a Cavalier. And then you just had a collection of people, you know, so including... Paul Garlick, you know, is now influence associates, but Paul is, you know, sort of petrol head royalty. He, he wouldn't admit to that, but you know, of course, his, his 
background, you know, back to Max Power days and things like that. And he could remember, as could I, as could Paul Miller, as could a bunch of other people as well, the registration plates of our dad's company's cars back in the 1970s. <laughs> and that's, that's terrifying. So Yol 208T was my dad's 1.6 L Capri, the white one, that um, he produced on my birthday, whatever year that came out. And I wasn't very old. And I can remember... I can remember that so vividly. It was so exciting. We got picked up. My mum had borrowed my, her boss's car, which was a Bentley T2. And they loaded a load of really excitable schoolboys into it. And we went to, I think it was Temple Newsom in Leeds, where, you know, I don't know, we went on an adventure playground or something, or whatever you do with, with, with kids of that age. And that was really cool. The Bentley was very cool and all the rest of it. But then my dad turned up in a Capri... And that was the coolest thing on the planet. I can't begin to tell you just how wonderful that that sort of relatively latish model Capri was. was a one, it, a was one point cool, a one point six one. Was oh. it cool because it was attainable? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, vaguely attainable to the man on the street. Yeah, no. I'd, I'd, yeah, there's a bit of me that that is always my buttons get pressed by fast forwards of, mm-hmm. a, of a certain level, and I've owned a few. Um, uh, I owned a Coke bottle shaped Cortina Mark III that had started life as a two litre GT um, and was orange. And, and at some point along the way, it ended up with a zero one on both doors and uh, the, the full general leafing. But the, the rebel flag was on the boot because it had a black vinyl roof so it could, and a sunroof, clearly. And it and was, a, and was a four door. Um, and was just an absolutely mega looking thing that I used to run on a uh, when I got posted out to Suffolk um, I was at RAF Honington which when you haven't got kids and stuff lovely place to live and all the rest of it you know and if you've got young kids I think you know when they're idyllic you're in between sort of Bury St Edmunds and Thetford and, um, but when you uh, I, I was uh, I think I, I was single at the time I was with Jude and we had a house together but, but, but that was up in Yorkshire I was bored senseless you know, being stuck in, in rural Suffolk during the week as a, as a young man. So I had a sort of, you know, Make Honington Interesting programme that involved a number of things, one of which was racing and doing track days. Um, and the other one was uh, we had my runway car to just drive from the officer's mess all the way around the perimeter track to where I worked on the other side of this big runway. I bought this, I bought this Cortina um, from Bishop Auckland somewhere. And the bloke who'd done the wiring on it was on ecstasy, because his mind clearly wasn't on the job. And the, the engine was attached to the gearbox by three bolts. The bell housing opened up when you released the clutch. Oh, nice. With the torque. And that, that was pretty cool. And that ended up with a... That had a, a nice little V6 got dropped in it, and then a Cosworth V6 got dropped in it. And it had side exit exhaust under the back doors. But it kept you out of trouble. Oh, it was just mega. I loved it. <laughs> so that, yeah, there's a bit of me that loves those old fast forwards. So every time, you know, Ford do something... Uh, when they brought out the the uh, the ST in orange, um, yeah, and I mean that was that was completely that just pressed all my buttons. It's ridiculous. Just the way I'm not took you back. An orange fast forward. And I, I love it. It's really cool. <laughs> we've um, we've got a bright red Mustang parked outside this place here today, and I, I was driving that last week, and it's just hilarious. It's it's a that's a very different sort of non-European Ford, but but yeah, what a cool thing. And um, of course, at Autosport last week we had. Um, the new Fiesta ST was on the Motor One stand. Yes. In amongst some really amazing kit, you know, and Poppy Car was standing, you know, next but one to it and Project Eight and the 
um, 991 Cup car was there, and yeah. these little ST was sat out the front of it. They just look right. Well, aren't they mega little things? So, yeah. yes, you're right, I'm a petrol head. <laughs> <laughs> when you were going through school, did you ever think, was it was an idea, oh, I want to do something with cars? Was that ever was um, that ever a reality, or was it just a case of getting through school? No, I mean, um, I, uh, I've always been a petrol head, but that's always kind of been a backdrop to, to what I've been doing. Um, and, and, and really sort of my first love really which was which was the army um and where did that come from um well i've always been quite technical so i've always i've always enjoyed kit mm. and stuff I've, I've previously been on record at owning up to it but i have um uh i have owned up to being in the royal air force cadets which um uh, which some of my army colleagues will find particularly hilarious. So uh, I, I was in the RF cadets at school because uh, there's no rivalry between none whatsoever. No, no, it's, it's all one it's, big happy family. It absolutely is. <laughs> yes, um, and I uh, I actually did a flying scholarship and uh, was lined up to do sort of officer selection into into the Royal Air Force, um, but knew I was unlikely to do fast jet pilot because of my eyesight, which isn't perfect. I thought I could fly, but not do not do fast jet. Uh, but a mate of mine was in the army cadets and said, uh, you know, do you want to, you know, what are you doing this weekend? You know, you want to come out to the, uh, with the army lot to Catrick. And I think the big draw at the time for, you know, me age 16 or 17 or whatever it was, um, was that they were going to get me a set of combats to go and run around it. So he said, <laughs> he, he said that and away I went and I, I effectively changed it. You know, that was the, the light came on and I, I, uh, um, I didn't change allegiances. I love, I love our Royal Air Force. I think they're, I think they're fantastic. And this year's the hundredth anniversary, which is something we'll, we'll be very keen on celebrating. It's, a, it's an incredible, uh, that's an incredible thing to look back on. But uh, the army just totally pressed my buttons, and and that's where I, I kind of knew I wanted to be. Um, uh, cars and stuff like that took a back seat. I mean, when you're a student, I was a student living in Newcastle, so I mean. Um, as a backdrop to that, I ran a 1965 Unimog crew cab as my student car for a while. I had a 78. Well, of course, why? why? Yeah. It's the only way to travel. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty good, and it could get to Holy Island even at high tide, <laughs> full of drunken Geordies and students. Um, it was uh, that was an used to turn up at sort of off road trials with a Unimog, and other people used to go oh, and, and went home. You know, they would leave if they saw me arrive because this thing was just epic. Uh, I had a 78 Camaro, um, the old sort of... Again, another typical student... Vehicle. Typical student car, perfect, excellent on fuel. Um, and renowned uh, for its yeah, excellence on fuel. Renowned for its excellence on fuel and also its handling characteristics. <laughs> if, you, if you're commuting sort of across the dales to my parents' house, you know, this, in this boat. Um, uh, that, that was a bit of a giggle. And then I... Uh, and a whole series of Land Rovers. And the Land Rover stuff really came about because... I wanted to do motorsport, I wanted to compete, but um, uh, that's a really difficult thing to, to do. Go-karting is the traditional route that people would take if they go and do it, but um, I needed something that was practical and that I could do as well, and, and doing Land Rovers and trials and stuff like that, the off-road stuff, gave me uh, a car I could fit myself and my mates in, and with a 13mm spanner I could take the top off and had a convertible in summer, and you could go and compete with this thing on the weekend. And the other thing that I... It was an eye-opener for me as well, was that there was a great community around a brand and a doing things and doing stuff in a certain way. And that really introduced me to 
sort of community stuff and volunteering, which is something I'm I'm really passionate about, mm. and I think that that is is something that's disappearing. It's not something that you're seeing more of. Um, uh, it's something that modern society doesn't particularly encourage these days, and um, so much of uh, of sports relies on volunteering, and so much of what traditionally used to be thought of as community and what people thought of as their sense of self, where they fitted in within their role in the country and you know their their um, identity was built around what they did, the things that they did, the things that they held dear to themselves, and how they spent their time. And um, volunteering is not a thing that pops up in many lives, in many people's lives these days. I think that's a great shame. And for those that do. I think we've all got a burden of responsibility to make sure that those volunteers are rewarded for what they do and that they, uh, and that they feel part of things and they feel engaged and that um, uh, it, it's a positive part of their lives because I think it's a really important thing to society as a whole. We do seem to be becoming more isolated. And uh, in, in, a, in a, I think in the, uh, in the real physical world yep. whereas we are connecting possibly with many more people that we would never have done if it wasn't for the likes of social media totally. uh, I mean this podcast would not exist if it wasn't for social media yep. um, so you know it does have its positives but you can just sit in a room on that and think you are part of something and then go out the door and not know anyone and it, it can have a it can have a real negative tinge to it as well um, okay, so day job. Ultimately, you know, what do we do? We help people to make that transition in between service life and uh, and that which lies afterwards. Um, and sort of much has been written about PTSD, uh, so post-traumatic stress disorder, and you know the privations that people have suffered as as a result of having been involved personally in high-intensity operations. Um, and uh, yep, we see that. You know, we see we see quite a bit of it. Um, I've got some personal experience of, of that kind of thing, but I think there's a, there's another piece which is, uh, and you, you nail it absolutely where you're talking about isolation in modern society. Um, uh, for those guys who came back from fighting the Second World War, um, they had been away from their families for a ridiculous amount of time. You know, without R and R and things like that, mm. and they had seen horrors. You know, those who sort of went into uh, sort of Germany and Poland and, you know, sort of Auschwitz and Birkenau and places like that and the high intensity of fighting that people have been subjected to um, is, you know, it, very similar to exactly what you'd, you know, the, the guys who've, who've seen real horrors in Afghanistan or Sierra Leone or, um, or, or Iraq and the pressures that they've been under. Well, they come back to a society, though, that, that is very different to the society that people came back to at the end of the Second World War or after Malaya. Um, you know, we still had rationing in 52. Um, and the whole country had been at war. They'd suffered uh, themselves, the children had been sent into the countryside in order to be educated. And families had been, London had suffered the blitz, Coventry was levelled. Um, and um, the country knew what had gone on. Yeah. Everybody was aware. Everybody was touched by it. Totally. And you came back to uh, a, uh, a country of communities, of people who'd been through that together, and there were local pubs where people would go, and you know, for all the problems of alcohol, the social gains of the local village pub and the community that that gives you is a fantastic thing. And that's something which we're, we're losing. You know, Village pubs are closing all of the time. 
the Royal British Legion in its local things would have um, real communities around them and that's something which is changing in the world of Netflix, Xbox, cheap supermarket booze that you haven't even gone to the supermarket to purchase, you know, that just arrives at your door. And um, it's much more about the individual um, these days. So your servicemen who, who are coming out these days are the same characters who've been through the same sort of things that they were back in the day, but the gap between them and where society is is much greater now than I think it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. And that's a real challenge to help some get across it. Now, this isn't everybody, you know. Some step across with absolute aplomb, spread their wings and go and do fantastic things. But for those that don't, that can't, that struggle, who've suffered through traumatic injury or through trauma itself, that can seem like a, a, a real intimidating hill to climb. And what we do is uh, provide some help in order to allow them to get across that gap and, and, and be successful in their own right afterwards. Mm. Yeah. So when you, you've gone off to uh, run around in combats, gone, yes, please, I'll have more of this, thank you. When did you, how long after that before you joined? Um, uh, well, I was, uh, so I'm massively um, institutionalised. So I came out of school, well, theoretically, I'm massively institutionalised. I don't think the institutions would have agreed, actually, at the time. I came, uh, I went to university. Um, it took me a little bit longer than it should have to get a three-year degree. Um, because I was distracted with going... You were busy as a taxi service for people across... The well, I was, yeah. no, I, drove, I drove support car as well on the Kenya Safari Rally a couple of years in a row, which was just before my exams. <laughs> that, was, that was... Again, renowned, perfect revision. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, was it was awesome. Yeah, for the business of soil science or whatever I should have been learning about. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and then came out and in 1995 went to Sandhurst uh, to the commissioning course for a year, which... Um, uh, and actually, my, my big focus around that time was was kayaking. I, um, uh, I used to do a lot of stupid downhill kayaking of waterfalls and uh, and things like that, and dallied around the edges of, of some of the guys who were doing really well on the GB freestyle team. Um, and uh, uh, that was kind of my thing. And the army sort of responded to that. Actually, the Royal Engineers offered me a career path that would really help with doing that sort of kayaking stuff. Um, because they're large enough as a core and sporty enough to have a focus on that kind of thing, to be able to offer the, you know the young officer um, uh, the opportunity to go and do you know uh, expeditions in the Alps at Easter and uh, towards the end of the year, you know go and lead expeditions in Nepal, doing doing great stuff like that. And instead, I joined the Royal Tank Regiment, who posted me to the middle of Germany. Um, and renowned then, for waterfalls, renowned for waterfalls, you know, and uh, as a series of tours overseas. Uh, none of which were particularly conducive to that kind of thing, and um, uh, and a home posting in the middle of Suffolk, you know, which is again renowned for its downhill, <laughs> its downhill water, and that was part of the, you know, let's make make Honington interesting, and Snetterton and motorsport and motoring then really sort of played a role in that because my sort of my other great love was uh, was cars in it, and I started to build a ridiculous fleet of vehicles <laughs> uh, because I had the space to do so. So is it the adrenaline that you search for? Because you, you, some of your cars, they're not... Mm. I, it's a relaxing motorway cruiser that you've mentioned so far. And the stuff no. you did with them. 
Yes. And then there's the the the, the kayaking again, not renowned for a, no. This is this is all adrenaline junkie stuff, and it's um. Uh, but you know, for folk who join the army, they they don't join for the dull bits. Now, they, true. Yes. Mili- military careers are famous at being ninety eight percent incredible dull routine nonsense, and then two percent of utter bowel loosening excitement. Um, and, uh, uh, and and a lot about the sort of military psyche and all the rest of it kind of lends itself to that. And the use of adventure sports and things like that in order to help people train to take people out of their comfort zone and, and put them really under pressure helps them prepare them then for when they find themselves under the ultimate pressure of you know sort of being shot at and uh, um, and uh, and doing things you know where people's lives are, are massively at risk. So the adrenaline sports all kind of lend themselves to that as well. And of course, motor sports absolutely is full of that. You know, it's it's great. And the fact that I had a bit of technical bent as well meant I kind of liked the kit and the engineering and that all sort of interested me too. So I'd helped out on a couple of projects that were um, uh, all about refining race cars really and things like that. And there was an interesting university project that had come out of the University of Huddersfield that had legs beyond somebody's um, uh, degree, which was for a bike engine seven-type car called the Tonic R, T-O-N-I-Q, hyphen R, which was a funny-looking bathtub seven-type thing that had a bike engine in the front of it. And I was running a bike engine race car at the time that was that was a pretty cool piece of kit. And I was asked, you know, can you help us set this thing up and do the handling of it? And fortunately, I had a two-mile-long runway and a whole load of operating surface to play with. And had a very distracting summer um, farting about making this um, project car really handle as well as the race car did and tweaking it a bit. And then they said, look, we need to release this to the press, uh, but we don't know how to do it. Uh, you know, can you help? And I said, well, I don't know either, but um, I avidly consumed all of the, um, the motoring press at the time. You know, I've been a subscriber to Evo since the very beginning uh, and would, would hoover all of this stuff up. So opened the magazines, went to the front cover, you know, found the um, email address for whoever it was you want to talk to. And thought, oh, they must get loads of emails. I need to do something a bit different. So we made just a little video, which um, uh, was very cool on the old Nuke storage site, which had only just closed. So it was a series of nuclear bunkers, lots of big fences and all the rest of it. And then there was a sort of sweeping panoramic shot of, you know, lots of nuclear bunkers. And it was basically Teletubby land, you know, all of these <laughs> green rabbit-covered hillsides with, you know, with things uh, with these big doors a big set of doors opening into darkness and then the lights of this thing coming on as it flies out, lays a big set of 11s and zoom past the camera and away. So, so we just sent this little clip to, you know, come and see us out, RF Honington, you know, and then you know, you'll, you'll need security clearance and all the rest of it in order to be able to get in here and sent it to the magazines hoping that a couple would bite. And, um, and then everybody turned up. It was extraordinary. Because <laughs> you know, so they, they were all absolutely fascinated. You know, so sort of autocar came, you know, and, and it was it was great to then sort of demo this little car. And out of the back of that, the car was, um, in terms of the thing that you could drive, all the rest of it, it was it was great. You know, it, it felt brilliant, you know, which is kind of what we knew it would. But out of the back of that, then came some offers to help out with um, with doing some other bits and pieces. Uh, some of which were car development, and some of which was journalist stuff. So helping out on group tests and the like. And I still get wheeled out for uh, 
you know, things like Evo Car of the Year is something that you'll kind of make time in your diary to go and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you get the opportunity to go and do things like that, then I would. It, it was really good. Um, and that was one of the reasons why um, Mission Motorsport really grew as quickly as it did from nothing, because we, we had a bank account of zero on the 1st of March 2012. But what we had was um, a black book of great connections into industry of people who knew my background and knew what I did and knew how genuine it was really and therefore were minded to help even when organisationally it wasn't the most obvious thing to do for a Japanese car company for example to support something that was a formative British military charity. Mm. It's not the most obvious link um, but um, thanks to the personalities that I knew and the people who were involved and, and I'm you know forever indebted to them they, they were quick to support when I came back from Afghanistan and said, look, I've, I've got a load of my blokes who are hurt and I want to do something cool with them. Will you help me, Will you help me to do it? And, uh, and bless them, they said yes. So you said um, moving now to, to starting, up the, uh, starting up Mission Motorsports, you were still working at the time, mm. you're still in service. How many people did you start with? Um, uh, it was pretty straightforward. I mean... The idea came about, I was coming back through uh, a process called decompression, um, where instead of bringing you directly back from Afghanistan, covered in dust and delivering you into the middle of the Cotswolds at um, at Bryce Norton, into the arms of your family, they put a 24-hour gap in between. And they call it decompression, which is an excellent name because that's exactly what it is, is to allow you to go and just relieve some of the tension of of, of the, uh, the stress of the tour. Um, it's, it's a weird thing when you go away and you're weird when you come back. And it doesn't matter how much you know it's coming, you're still going to be weird. And you know, my wife had um, seen me go away plenty of times in the past, um, including you know, when we've had kids. Um, now, my youngest was born when I was in Afghanistan this last time. And we knew that it was going to be strange when we come back because I've done it plenty of times before but it didn't help when it actually happened you're still weird mm. um, uh, and it's it, it's still quite a, a transition to go through to, to go through that um, I, I was a, um, uh, an officer in the Royal Tank Regiment my regiment had been switched on enough in order to be able to reunite us with some of the guys who'd been wounded during the tour who uh, some of whom had lost limbs or had traumatic brain injuries who'd you know, suffered terrible injuries um, who we had not seen since we loaded them into the back of uh, Mert, the Kazakh helicopter, you know, out there under fire um, in the middle of Helmand. You're then reunited with these guys in Cyprus, um, in this little camp that they had specifically for the purpose of, of allowing people to let off a bit of steam. It was pretty extraordinary. Um, and um, I'd been turning over in my head some of the ideas about what I could do with some of the opportunities which I'd been offered, which in the past I'd always used for fundraising. Um, whether it was raising money for Help for Heroes or the Army Benevolent Fund or or the Royal British Legion, um, I actually had blokes who I realised would really love some of those opportunities themselves. And rather than it being a sort of corporate offer where somebody writes a, you know, cheque for... um, uh, to be able to go racing over a a boozy dinner, you know, writes off a bit of company money um, uh, for a charity in order to do it, I actually had guys who I thought, you know, would really would really benefit from doing this. 
what I'd underestimated is just how much they got out of it and the opportunities that they got out of it as well. Um, and uh, Graham Fudge at Mazda, the PR director at Mazda UK, who's, um, who's a, a, a mega bloke. Um, I've managed to pin down at the, um, uh, the Festival Speed. Graham's been running for a while, a couple of... He'd been running for a while, a couple of uh, just standard spec, but fully built up endurance cars, uh, Mark 3.5 MX-5s, mega, mega cars. Um, but they were running largely for press, and I'd helped out with bits and pieces in the past of hand-holding for, for members of the press who were getting to experience racing for the first time, and I'd helped out a bit with instruction and stuff for them. Uh, and I'd sort of said to him, look, um, is there any chance, can I uh, possibly have a seat in the car that's gonna, in one of the cars that's going to run at the 24-hour um, race at, um, uh, at Silverstone in order to raise the profile of Forces Charities? And he didn't give me a seat, he gave me the whole car. And I'd, I'd rung him, I'd, I'd misheard, so I'd rung him the week after to check that, you know, he remembered. And, uh, and I sort of said, who else is in the car with me? And he went, you know, it's your car, it's whoever you want. Bloody hell, right, okay. So <laughs> I had to go and find, uh, you know, let's do this as a proper military thing. So we had to go and find those drivers in the army who had the right National A licence and the sort of experience that would allow them to do that. And it was a team of wounded blokes who were then trained up by... Jota, you know, this incredible team that's now gone on and won Le Mans at LMP2. God, they led it for hours this year. Mm. That was the most exciting thing ever. Um, uh, just as an aside, I was standing in Toyota Hospitality, um, ridiculously excited among some very crestfallen Toyota people, because Toyota, you know, were, were desperately unlucky. But um, uh, Jota were doing incredibly well. And Aston Martin were just coming to the fore as well for the last lap. And I was, I was, I was, oh, just extraordinary, absolutely amazing. But I, I was kind of, I was the odd man out, really, because um, uh, it just really. It's like you're in the away end. Oh, I, really, I really felt for Toyota, I and mean, they just put heart and soul into it, yeah, and yeah. and were were denied for all of the cruelest of motorsport reasons, um, which which was really bad. But what an incredible year for everybody else. But um. Sam Hignett, who's the, who's the boss at Jota, and I were having a conversation. I'd just got out of the car at 4am. I did it. I always get given the really rubbish, ridiculously long nighttime stint so that everyone else gets to sleep. You're the gaffer. Yeah. You should be able to pull some strings. Well, no, no, it kind of works the other way. So because I am, I'm the one who does the rubbish bit. And the, um, but that's all right, you know, and I got out of the car and was absolutely buzzing after this, um, after this long stint. And... Uh, chatting to Sam sort of said what do you think of the blokes and we had a team of wounded guys who were on the car who they trained up and he went you know they've just been fabulous but where are they and um, they, they, they were completely absent we were looking around where, where on earth have they gone and they were in the garage next door where there was a team that was running in the same class as us and it was a, an MR2 run by Rogue Motorsport who had just had a really rotten run of luck um, uh, with getting tagged by other cars and then uh, uh, and then some um, reliability problems and were, were potentially going to end up um, uh, having to leave the race uh, and all of our blokes were underneath the car trying to pull the hot exhaust off the bottom of it in order to get this thing out and back in the race you know, at four in the morning and Sam Higgins said at the time you know, he gets any number of applications from guys with degrees in motorsport from the University of God knows where but at four in the morning when the chips are down he doesn't want to uh, a lecture on health and safety in the pit lane. What he wants is, you know, he's indicating, I want that. And 
Uh, and then when a couple of weeks later he sort of rang us up and inquired after one of my guys, Will Madden, 19 years old, and said, when's Will going to be medically discharged because we'd be interested in offering him a job? You go, God, wow, okay. Um, we need to do this properly. Mm. You know, this, this can't just be a spare time thing. And that, that really built some impetus with us and seeing some failings elsewhere. But it also helped... Yeah. It, it, in that little, almost like a beta mm. test, that helped you realise that it, the idea was correct. Yeah. It's a viable thing. This is something that can work. Uh, absolutely. And, and the, the joy of Mission Motorsport is it is completely evidence-based. So since we first set things up, we used examples of bloking bad place is dragged off the sofa by sexy sports. And that takes him on a recovery journey that leaves him in a better place. Mm -hmm. And we started Mission Motorsport with examples of that, that we'd done through that formative period in 2011, the sort of second half of 2011, um, which then Mission Motorsport has just built on ever since. And uh, I mean, we get to do some sexy things, you know, they've got some cool brands and things that are attached to it. And, you know, it, 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 being able to put guys in front of, you know, princes and things like that, that's really sexy. But the things that most get me out of bed in the morning that give us pride and actually we rely on as an organisation because it best describes what we do isn't any of that. It's the stories of the individuals who've been engaged with Mission Motorsport and the journeys that they've gone on and how it's helped them in their lives to, to go on to doing better things. It must be very tricky when you've got an organisation that is growing and typically with an organisation that grows, you look to standardise mm. things that happen. But in this instance, I can imagine you really... Well, you can sort of generally, but each person is an individual and has individual needs that totally. the next person in the next chair does not have. How do you, how do you deal with that? No, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and for example, our training wing. So the training wing was launched with support from the Royal Foundation's Endeavour Fund, where the Royal Foundation is the charitable trust of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry. Uh, and they helped us out with Help for Heroes, who brought this fantastic offer from City and Guilds to develop a formal training school, uh, an academy here at, at Mission Motorsport, which allows us to deliver, and our core course is a level three diploma um, in light vehicle engineering, um, which allows people to have a piece of paper in their hand, which is truly recognisable by employers, you know, um, uh, the standard at which they can go, and we can recognise a lot of prime military learning. Um, we rather naively um, had a view at the beginning that we would have three intakes a year, would run in terms, and would deliver a course that um, uh, delivered sections A, B, C, D, E, F, in order through to Z, at which point somebody would get their diploma. They would all get their diploma and they would all leave at the same time. So running like a normal... Running like a normal college. And yeah. Yeah, a college has the luxury of everybody turns up in September, they're all the same age, they've all got the same prior qualifications to the same level which you've stipulated, and they're all leaving with the same kind of expectations about what they're going to do with that, that um, qualification. Our lot are perfect in their variety. Um, different shapes and sizes, ages, uh, disabilities, rates of learning. Some of them are very professionally prior qualified. Everybody from literally rocket engineers um, through to um, young guys who, who served who had not much in the way of qualifications at school 
and not picked up much in the way of formal qualifications during their military career that's it's the kind of thing which you can obviously translate into, into civilian life. Um, but I've been banging on about that for ages, um, you know, uh, from my trade. Um, there are no jobs in Civvy Street um, driving, commanding or crewing Challenger 2. But there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs out there for Challenger 2 crew, commanders and drivers. It just so happens that none of them are on a main battle tank. Mm. Um, and those transferable skills, um, uh, they, can, they can be turned to practically anything. And actually what most of the army is about is, is actually people. It's all about man management and it's, uh, it, 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 it's actually the oldest trade in the world. I think there's another trade that's, that's related to it that gets a lot of good press, but uh, <laughs> we haven't put anyone into that, I don't think, as, long as, as far as I know. <laughs> But, you know, never say never. So, <laughs> not deliberately yet. <laughs> no, not yet. Um, but um, uh, it, it, helping people to translate what they do in the military and then put it into a civilian context is just a matter of really helping to expose them from one side to the other. It's really hard when you're serving to know what civvies do for a living. I mean, Is it a case of, as well, them understanding that the skills they've got are actually a real thing for... That is, that is useful in Civvy Street, yes. as well as us in Civvy Street realising the people have got skills that are very valuable to us and in the stuff that you know, we, we need. I mean, I think there's been a, an upsurge in both interest and understanding of service personnel and the sort of service causes. And it was really, I think, typified by the rise of Help for Heroes, who... who incredibly successfully captured a zeitgeist, a sort of public swell of feeling that putting aside politics of whether you feel we should be in Iraq and Afghanistan and the politics of the situation is recognising that the blokes didn't make that decision. The reason why they're there is because the politicians have put them there and they are there so that we don't have to. Um, And... Quite aside from the politics and putting all of that aside, we have a duty of care to them to look after them when they have served for us, and particularly where that's had a profound effect on their lives and will continue to do so. Um, I spend very little time talking to the heads of industry and persuading them about the qualities of service personnel that make them desirable. That They know, or they've been close enough to it, or the likes of the corporate covenant give us an impetus to grant us an audience to be able to get in there. Um, the people who we spend all of our time convincing of those qualities are the blokes themselves because they don't see it. Yeah. It's really hard to know what civvies do for a living. It's really hard to know where you could fit in as part of that. And the joy of sport is um, uh, you pluck them out of their military context and you put them in alongside a load of civvies. If you go and take somebody to a gold track track day, for example there is a line of incredible cars that would be enough to make anybody get out of bed you know, and come and have a look. But behind it and driving them are... The reason there is that line of cars there is because they're all captains of industry. They're all very successful people in their own right. You know, they're, they're, they're there for a reason, and there's a business behind all of those. And it was through Melindy and Callum, for example, helping us out back in 2011 when we needed Silverstone time with a, a little Mark III MX-5 in order to get some, some sea time in. And because we were in Silverstone when 
I knew I had some wounded guys who lived in Northampton and uh, we had a um, related charity that was started by a last called Nikki Scott who was the widow of a uh, Royal Tank Regiment Corporal um, who was killed back in 2009 who was looking after children. She, she has two kids which, um, who, were, uh, who were left without a dad when he failed to come back from operations. They were also looking for an opportunity to get people out and give them days out. So we invited them to Silverstone. We invited the families a lot. And Melindy told her customers, and they started lining up down the pit lane in order to take people out in cars and to, and to give them a lift. Um, and that was incredible. You just see people's lights getting turned back on again. But what you can't do is just do that. Just do the day out and there's nothing beyond it because you've not helped them in the long term. You've used something really powerful a great draw, something that's incredibly cool. Who wants to go in a McLaren P1? Oh. Hell yes. <laughs> and it's a, you know, too right you do. But if you do that and you just send him home, that's great for the right bloke, but for the wrong guys in the wrong frame of mind, you've just shown him what he can never have. Mm. And then he's gone back to the part of the country that he joined the army to get away from, and you've not enriched it in any way. But if you bring him along, using the really powerful draw and then turn that to his best effect and help him by socialising, help him by getting him alongside others who are in a similar thing, developing a spirit of community that we were talking about before, mm. that he's part of something, that he's not the only one out there who's suffering those problems. It's amazing what can come out and what can be really helpful just out of a simple day out enjoying a bit of a bit of motorsport, you know, whether that's attending the auto sports show without having to pay for it, even that twelve pound car parking fee, you know, just eye watering. But <laughs> to be able to come along and, and do a thing like that, feel part of something, and go away enriched because you've widened your social circle and hopefully you've also found out that another bloke's been able to claim for something you never knew that you could claim for and now you can. Mm. Or you've had a real heart to heart because you're having some difficulties at home and whether that's with your relations with others or even you know whether it's relate counseling with your missus if that's opened your eyes to the fact that there's support available out there to help you and her with those things then that's fantastic then you're actually helping people beyond the moment um i mean sport is phenomenal it's restorative and healing but if you can turn it to wider good if you can link it to other things that sit on behind then that's in those individuals best interest and that's us at our best when we can when we can do things like that the ultimate expression of it is the, the guy or girl who struggled to get out of bed or to leave the house, who, who had lost hope, who ends up through a process of engagement um, defining themselves by something new. And it's always a litmus test that I can use with the blokes. And you say, who are you? What do you do? And if they sort of say, oh, no, I'm an Iraq veteran. I was blown up in 2006 and point at their missing leg. He's describing an event which happened to him 12 years ago. Um, instead, what you want them to do is, uh, you know, you say, you know, hi, what do you do? Is he tells you something which is about now and about looking forward and about other things in the community and the people with which they're engaged. Oh, and the reason why I do that is because, yeah, I was blown up back in the day, but what I do when they're talking about something which is in the present. Um, and that's very much what we, what we kind of set out to do. Um, I will sometimes jokingly say that, you know, we're sort of making things up as we go along we are in terms of the detail of the path um, opportunities pop up all of the time and we have to be really quite dynamic and flexible to take advantage of them and you end up with some really cool things like you know um, all of a sudden our 
HR links into Honda manufacturing in Swindon start to work. That's something we've been chipping away at for a long time. Um, it starts to happen. You have a diploma student from here who goes into a job that otherwise he would never have been able to do. He's really happy. And you end up with a ridiculous project like the racing CRV <laughs> that we put into Race of Remembrance. Uh, that, was a, that was not something that was on the plan at the beginning of the year, let alone on the three- or five-year plan. That was a, uh, a much quicker uh, opportunity, which we seized. So there's lots of flexibility in the individual bits and pieces of the programmes that we run. But the overall vision, I think, was really set in Afghanistan. And that was all about harnessing the power of motorsports in order to help people access uh, new and better lives. And that's where that race, retrain, recover mantra came from. And it's, uh, it's as true and as relevant today as it was when we were considering things back in 2011 or forming the charity in 2012. So, so when you, you've, you've, you've got with the, the race, um, someone's turned around, someone pucker has turned around and gone, mm. We want one of your chaps. Yeah. And you've gone, oh, crikey. Um, right, so we need to do this properly. How how did you go about that? Were you then talking to friends or whatever and saying, what do you think we should do? This is my vision. This is how I think it can happen. Do you think that's real? How did how did it progress from that um, sort of almost test moment yeah. to, right, we're doing this, we're going to do this properly? Well, actually, at the same time, um, defence was going through the same process. So... Help for Heroes was this you know, extraordinary um, idea, which was uh, with their original fundraising goal was all about putting a swimming pool, a hydrotherapy facility, into Headley Court, which was the, the main rehabilitation centre. Um, and by you know, mid-2010, their fundraising had vastly exceeded their original goals. And um, the original founders of Help for Heroes had gone to the Ministry of Defence and said... Okay, MOD, what do you need in order to meet this really big need? And so you end up with a lot of charity money then comes in to prop up something which became called the Defence Recovery Capability. And we have been part of that Defence Recovery Capability since its inception um, as Mission Motorsport. And um, there used to be a staff position which was sat within um, land, army, so the big headquarters at Andover, that was theoretically helping those who were leaving wounded, injured and sick into employment. And it consisted of, I think, a single major's position and a couple of civilian clerks. Um, clearly, there was an awful lot more work to be done than, than could go across, across their desk. And yes. their ability, as tied military type, sat in Andover to be able to network into any of the industries. I mean, the motor industries, 82, 80 to 82 billion pound a year turnover. Mm. Motorsport, uh, you know, well over nine billion a year turnover. Classic vehicle industries, you know, three and a half to five. They're now telling us if that's all huge, but that's a tiny slice of a tiny slice. It's a big slice of um, everything else: construction, banking, you know, all of those other things. The NHS, you know, uh, loads of opportunities going through one individual. You know, sat in in Andover. It clearly needed to get bigger, and so uh, there was a charity-funded organisation that, that started specifically looking at that career support piece which was the Recovery Career Services, which had a number of partner charities that, that um, uh, made it up, but it included Mission Motorsport right at the beginning of 2013. And that was through support from Walking with the Wounded and through Help for Heroes to fund us to focus on the automotive industry. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it, it grew from there. So as Mission Motorsport has grown, we're 
a subset of and a, and a specialist in a particular area of the industry as sort of the defence recovery capability has kind, of, has kind of grown around us as well. Now, the automotive industry, because of the nature of people that it needs and also the huge success of its growth over the last few years, has, um, has kind of brought us to prominence. Um, the really nice thing is Jaguar Land Rover is such a wonderful example. Um, they sponsored the first Invictus Games, we, which was a blind shot in the dark. You know, Prince Harry went off script when he visited the Warrior Games the year before and, uh, and then said on TV in his final interview, instead of saying, you know, thank you very much, we're looking forward to returning here next year, went off script and said, thank you very much, we're looking forward to welcoming you all to a similar event in the UK very soon, or something along those lines. And the chap who was in charge of... Um, uh, combined services, disabled and adaptive sports um, is a gentleman called David Norris who was watching this on BBC Breakfast, spat his cornflakes into the bowl. <laughs> My God, what have we been committed to? And, uh, Could have warned me a little bit. <laughs> and therefore, so, you know, Captain, Captain Wales's interview without coffee on Monday morning, you know, what the hell have you said, had become... Colonel Norris briefing Kensington Palace on how he would deliver Prince Harry's vision, <laughs> which is this wonderful way in which you know these these things can work in the UK. But um, sometimes it it um, needs ah, the kick totally. of someone powerful enough or important yeah. enough or seen enough yeah. to say something, and everyone goes, with that vision, right? And right. Right. it it was it was a vision, and it was a vision that was. Uh, articulated in such a way that people could just understand and see the benefits of it. And it led, you know, JLR really lent into it in that first year and uh, did extraordinary things. At the same time, the Corporate Covenant came out. So that was, uh, uh, you know, this this uh, initiative for industry to be able to sign up that they supported service causes. Um, and, uh, and Jaguar Land Rover went from not knowing how many veterans it employed or actually um, how, how many, um, uh, you know, it, it's really difficult, I think, for a big business to keep sort of tabs on a relationship with the Ministry of Defence and with service causes that's just as complicated as it is. They're, they're a defence supplier. Um, the HMS Coventry that has the freedom of the, there's the freedom of the ship and a, and a relationship with the city that sort of goes on that links back to all of these things, HMS Defender and Land Rover's coming off the line in, in Solihull. These are, all, um, uh, these are all a panoply of links. And then you've got um, veterans who work within your organisation who want to raise money for service causes and involve Jaguar Land Rover in it. It's a really complicated piece. What they did was they formed an armed forces committee that sought to try and bring these things together. It's a bit like playing whack-a-mole in that things will pop up from an unexpected quarter. So, but just to try and coordinate things, to look at how they dealt with all things armed forces. And they also funded a position in there, which is a Mission Motorsport post, who sits within Jaguar Land Rover, that coordinated that wounded, injured and sick placement scheme, mm -hmm. and also helped to drive some of the changes in their HR business, which meant that when somebody applied for a role, they ticked a box to say that they'd served, and that allowed somebody who actually speaks military to look at their CV, because military CVs are rubbish, and they're written in code, which I would understand if it was an army guy, you know, if it was an army guy's CV there, but, uh, but a civilian HR specialist wouldn't. Mm -hmm. 
And the flip side of that is the job descriptions are written in Welsh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, they're written in, in, in HR speak. And unless you understand um, industry speak, a service bloke on the outside has got very little chance of actually applying for the right job. Yeah. So they probably applied for the wrong job. And they probably inart- inarticulately expressed what level they're at, what kind of person they are, what individual they are. And providing a translation service in between the two will just help people find the right destination. Now, Jaguar Land Rover, and you talk about you know, vision and being set from the top. Ralph Schweff, uh, the chief executive, um, declared that they would hire a thousand veterans by 2020. Now, that's huge. Mm. Now, that's back in 2015. We're uh, just at the beginning of 2018 now, and we're on over 780 veteran hirings into Jaguar Land Rover. Now, that's extraordinary. Absolutely amazing. Now, a little part of that is that wounded, injured and sick veterans piece, you know, that's helping those. You know, we've got double amputees, single amputees, traumatic brain injuries, partially sighted. Guys who face really massive um, barriers uh, to subsequent employment who are happily in new careers, you know, proper, um, uh, proper working for Jaguar Land Rover in wonderful jobs, mm-hmm. in proper careers. Um, but they're just a small piece of a door which has been opened to veteran hirings, which is, has really benefited the company as well as the individuals who work there. Now, the joy is um, DHL then look across at Jaguar Land Rover and say, we signed the corporate covenant at the same time as you, but we've struggled to have that kind of success. How can we do it? And so we're also helping DHL um, and have been now for, for the last year to develop their own scheme in order to be able to do, to do likewise. And already it's, it's, it's been very successful for veterans to be able to find employment within a global logistics company that, whose reach is extraordinary. So when you started out, did you ever envisage that that was, that was going to happen? Um, I mean, you may hope, but... Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think so. Um, I, I tend to be quite critical of the organisation because I look at it and go, this bit doesn't have the capacity that I want it to, this bit isn't working well enough, there's a huge amount of stuff we could do there, our geographical reach isn't good enough there, and so I tend to be quite critical about it. Um, do we you have to be reminded? Yeah, every now and then. Sometimes. Yeah, it is quite cool. <laughs> um, but, but that's part of, you know, I think if I was sat back and quite content with things, then, um, then that would be the point where I really need to go and do something else. Uh, I'm still, you know, I can see very clearly exactly where we still need to be, where we're not doing well enough, and, and we are working very hard in order to, to close those gaps. I'm, I'm really happy with where we are. That our, we did a, a big bit of naval gazing at our fifth anniversary, which was March last year. Um, where we were able to actually you know, sit back and go, well, what have we done over the last five years? And you just saw this sort of incredible graph of uh, things as they stepped up. And that's really continued into this year. The, the number's even more so now because we're, we're running programmes, so we're doing things with, with the benefits of partners. I think our, our five-year review was something which you sort of look back on and really proud of, but we've got some way beyond that into, into year six as we just sort of come into the end of our, our sixth year. And that's because we're... We're delivering big projects now, which, are, um, which have increased the numbers dramatically. So when we came in this morning, there was a young man who'd literally just arrived, um, looking a little bit nervous and smartly dressed. Um, he's here to do a, um, uh, an assessment day because he's going on to a technician scheme with Jaguar Land Rover, but into the retailers, into the dealerships. Mm-hmm. 
this is the second phase of this program that we're running. It was pioneering, run it for the first time at the end of last year for veterans to be able to look at uh, coming and doing a veteran-specific um, transition into industry to help put them into uh, technicians' roles. And that's dotted around the country. It's not just in manufacturing in the Midlands. This is, you know, um, uh, all across the UK into retail. And first time we turned the handle on it and ran it, I think we had eight guys came through it. Um, all eight of them went straight into jobs. So we're running a bunch of these assessments at the moment and they're running next door in the training wing. It's absolutely fantastic. So the, the likelihood of long-term employment for these guys who are service leavers who are coming through this place is fantastic. And that's so exciting to see. It's just, it's just wonderful, you know. And did I think we, we would get there? Yeah, I think in my wildest dreams I probably thought perhaps we might. But I, I don't tend to deal too much in pipe dreams and more interested in practicality. So it's just driving things towards that point. Has anything, or maybe several things, have happened that you had no idea was going to occur as a result of of the the idea of of the Mission Motorsport originally? And you, you're working on. I mean, same sort of same before about the we make it up as we go along and I, I sort of know what you mean you're not you're, you're not being fli- you've been a little bit flippant there but uh, <laughs> yeah. but you were saying stuff just comes in I presume you've had some stuff from left field that you've sort of oh well, I never thought of that um, but yes I, I mean all of the things that, that would sort of yes and I think you, you can point at some organisational stuff and go you know where you do that sort of looking down on yourself and going I can't believe we're here um also, sport. There are a couple of amazing examples of that. You know that Billy Munger stunt team thing with Terry Grant. You know, which was fab. Ah, oh, just extraordinary. And the the video which has come out was produced by Lionel O'Connor's brother. So Lionel, of the single amputee, was um, uh, who runs that that whole piece of work, the car control thing. It's um, also one of the drivers. For yeah, your ridiculous CRV. For the ridiculous CRV project. <laughs> and the reason he was the driver for the ridiculous CRV project is because. He went out with a team of guys to Finland last year, February last year, with Honda doing cold weather testing with Type R, but also with Civic, with the CVT gearbox, and Lionel drives CVT all the time. The development engineers were so impressed with the feedback he was giving them, because most of the development engineers, because they're petrol heads, they never drive autos. Mm. Lionel has to, he's a huge petrol head, has to drive an auto all the time. So his feedback was just fantastic. So... The Civic has gone out to the world market. So five-door Civic, um, one litre and 1.5 with a CVT gearbox, which is basically a step CVT transmission. Its um, software code uh, includes the line Lionel version 4, because that's the fourth, <laughs> fourth rotation. So every day they were sending back feedback to the factory. They were getting a new software flash came out, reflashed the car. Lionel drove it with his, his suggested changes. He went through four iterations of that. And the Honda guys were so impressed with him. When we came up with a you know, stupid CRV idea, which, which they're as guilty of as we were, they said, yeah, no, let's do this. We've got one criteria. Lionel, Lionel is one of the guys who gets to drive it. So I'm like, Lionel, you're going racing. <laughs> He's like, oh. <laughs> I He's like a, to go in circles. <laughs> oh, it's, just, it's just brilliant. Um, so you, you look at things like that. Invictus Games Racing, I mean, you know, that, that's just an incredible thing. And, you know, British GC this year is going to be it's going to be full of it. And our guys who we've helped select and train who are going through it, who are the drivers, but then there's a whole other population of people who will be putting through that programme who will be um, getting to do roles on the team. And they'll mm. be doing it as part of their own, whether they're doing a diploma course or whether they're trying to step into motorsport 
or whether they're just trying to see what civvies do for a living, go and do it alongside British GT wearing Victor's games on your chest because that will be a life-changing event for you. That's, that's, really, that's really important. Yeah. That uh, I, some, I think sometimes people forget because they see the, the car, the, the stunts and all yeah. that. It's, it's all the layers. Totally. It's, yeah. air, it's all the roles involved. That's what it, the whole point is. Look, no, you can be part of it because it's such a massive universe. Yeah. There, are, there is a place for you somewhere there if you're interested. And I, and I think the, the things that, that I haven't anticipated and the things that rock me the most actually are the responses of the blokes when you get a really honest and heartfelt examination of where they've been and where they've come from and how that's changed them. But actually it's the families. Um, it's the wider piece and I, I one of the reasons why we started this is I'd seen the effect that it had on our on my own family and uh, I think you know to have been affected by operations which is that, that sort of tagline for Mission Motorsport you know we help a population who've been affected by operations you don't necessarily have been to Iraq or Afghanistan to have been affected by what's going on there there are plenty who didn't deploy who stayed at home who managed the gap who who um, raised kids in absence, who worried about loved ones who, who were overseas, who have also been quite profoundly affected by that military service as well, um, without having served themselves. And, you know, Simon, our ops manager, um, you know, is a, uh, is a really solid individual, really um, great sense of humour, quite quiet. I've never seen him. I've never seen him rocked by anything. But uh, there was a beneficiary's fourteen-year-old son came and thanked him for giving him his dad back, and uh, and Simon was was in absolute was in absolute tatters. It's really powerful stuff where you see the effect that this has on people beyond the sexy moments of excitement, you know, where there's bunting and flags and all the rest of it. It's when things go quiet, as Andy Jones wrote in Motorsport magazine. At the end of that excitement, it's how you enrich them in, in the wider piece and to allow people to um, find a sense of self and purpose that allows them to be happy in their own skin and to provide and look after their families. Um, that's absolutely wonderful if, if our work in some way does that. And, you know, Lionel's wife, Layla, who's very much a part of, of that whole team and how it delivers and the kids, you know, who, who are around the place as well, um, she's, um, you know, she talks about um, getting her husband back. Lionel talks about um, how the uh, anxiety and the depression which he suffered as a result of, uh, of what's happened to him um, made him ineffectual as a parent. Mm. And you see him parenting now, and he's, he's extraordinary, you know, he's, he's fantastic. And they're a lovely family unit, and that's the thing that's most touching, I think, and that's the thing that continues to make me bounce out of bed in the morning or, you know, equally be, be up late at night, driving yeah. Mrs Cameron nuts by doing work when I should be doing other things. <laughs> okay, last question then before I do the quick fires, because I'm very conscious I'm taking up all your time here. Um, what, are, what are your plans for Mission Motorsport moving forward? Um, the, if there's the ones you can reveal. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, uh, the, the critical piece uh, for us is the quality of what we do. So whatever we plan to do in the future, what we can't do is, is allow um, that core reason for getting out of bed in the morning to, to leave us. 
So everything is caveated with we have to be doing it in the right way and to go about things in the, in the right time. And we, we do get some fantastic approaches and some wonderfully sort of sexy opportunities, which, which we turn down. Um, and it's because we have to be able to do things in the right way. Um, but we're massively oversubscribed. We're oversubscribed both in blokes who want something from us, who mm -hmm. are coming through our offer. And also, we, we are... Um, uh, at the moment, the, there is so many opportunities out there for them as well. Just to try and understand that context is, is a, you know, almost an ending task. So we need to grow. But what we've got to do is grow in a way that's, that's positive, meets the aims of the organisation, which is looking after the beneficiaries who come through. It's not about building a brand. It's not about setting out an Everest of sport and going, yeah, no, Mission Motorsport's going to go and do Le Mans in 2020, because that would be wrong. Um, it would be all about the organisation. It would be all about um, uh, sort of aggrandising something, which actually isn't important. The thing that's really important is the blokes. Mm -hmm. So um, we do do motor racing, but we do it in order to achieve an aim for people. Mikey Courts, um, uh, you know, had help to go motor racing by us. But actually, for Mikey, it's all about his sense of self. He was made an instructor. Um, it, and his networking that came about through that has put him in a job, and he's working in finance. But, but it's a really good job. He's doing incredibly well at it. He's just been given the Employee of the Year award. And actually, his burning, I've got to go and do motorsport bit, it's kind of going away a little bit, because he's going, actually, I realised that that, was a, that wasn't the goal in itself. That was a contributory step to actually being happy in his own head. And for these lads, that's not a simple fix. It doesn't get cured overnight. If you go and do Dakar, that doesn't make you cured the day you come home. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, with, uh, if you come home from doing a thing like that and you haven't benefited from it in the long term, then we'd be failing them. And so we're, we're really, really focused on, on, on meeting those recovery goals. What do we need to do better? We need to do geographic spread better. Um, I'm a Yorkshireman, so you know, for the fact that I'm sat here in uh, in Oxfordshire, you know, with an offer and a fantastic facility here, which is great, but it's not easily reachable by those who 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 aren't within easy reach of this part of the world. That's that doesn't sit um, well with me. So I think I think there's going to be um, satellite operations happening. I think that allows us to better reach our our, our population who who can't easily get here. Do the, um, sorry, we're slightly no. off topic here, but do people come to the armed forces from particular areas of the country? Yeah. Generally, well, are, they, are they, or is it, is it really, is it just a, a general spread? No, they're from all over the place. So we'll get a phone call from somewhere that you go, okay, and you like put it in your phone trying to Google where, you know, <laughs> have you got anything for me? I'm from, yeah, and you, you're like, right, okay. And our ability to network and to help people when they do approach you from um, random bits of North Wales or Kent or you know, wherever else they might come from, our ability to go, ah, yeah, no, we can join you up with, we've got a trusted partner here or there or wherever. Um, and for those people who want to offer opportunities for us, go, I've got an opportunity, uh, it, it, we need to put somebody into a position in the next three months and we're in Chelmsford requires me to align an awful lot of constellations in order to be able to put somebody into Chelmsford. And that's what the vocational team work really hard on doing. 
Um, I mean, the side bit about being the Yorkshireman is um, I don't like spending money. I particularly don't like spending charity money. So if you know, if you go and have a look on our the Charity Commission's uh, summary of Mission Motorsports output on the Charity Commission site, there's a really good beta there, and you can see for any charity what their turnover was and what they spend their money on, and how much of their charitable income is spent generating future charitable income and how much is spent doing actual output. Mission Motorsport is a delivery organisation. The amount that we spend on fundraising is incredibly small. We spend all of our effort really doing output. And the fact that we have the Royal British Legion, Help for Heroes have been there since the outset, Walking with the Wounded and all of the other support from all the other service charities, industry beginning to lean into it, actually means that we focus on output that's something that we're we're really proud of and it's something that we'll maintain we're very much a delivery organization that's focused on what we do for blokes so what does the future bring yeah, okay there's a bit of there's a bit of reaching better into the regions okay and uh there's also you're going to see some new big partners popping up where we're helping to put veterans and those wounded injured and sick into employment and uh and i think we're kind of outgrowing this place as well so at some point we need to we need to step into somewhere which will better allow us to do what we do. You know these the buildings that we moved into back in 2013, uh, are, we're kind of bursting at the seams now. So you know, we're into we're into porter cabin and uh, and skip territory. So we need to be uh, uh, we need to move into somewhere that, that can really kind of house that a bit better. But it's I mean it's exciting. It's just it's it's really cool. I've got no shortage of things that I'm getting my teeth into. Good. Good. I can see, still see that you've definitely got a glint in your eye. And this <laughs> yeah. thing obviously means an incredible amount to you. So that's um, you're not getting uh, blasé about it or anything like that. So that's uh, reassuring to anybody who's um, no who's interested in the uh, in in what you guys do. So yeah, no, I'm very much now. My role is sitting back. I've got a staff of people who are fantastic. As I say, I don't like spending money. So you know we. Uh, we rely on gifts in kind, so we get an incredible amount of stuff that we don't have to pay for. But the only thing that I cannot and will not skimp on is professional staff, because that's actually the bit where we add value. Mm. It's a professional individual who's got time and bandwidth to spend with a bloke. And that's the thing you can't shortcut on. On the sporting side, actually, we're very light. We do an awful lot through volunteers, as sport tends to rely on. Mm. But through training and vocation, that's where you need people properly qualified with the time and bandwidth in order to be able to help individuals and you know as you'll meet when you go for a wander around here there's um, we've we've just got some fantastic team members who, who do really brilliant stuff and uh, yeah I'm really proud of them cool right I'm going to move on to the quick fire questions as I said before I'm really taking an awful lot of your time here so which I do appreciate um, what currently excites you about the motoring world uh, I think there's some really interesting changes with how we manage uh, both the politics and the emerging technologies of, of um, economy and fuel and electrical and hybrid and stuff. Um, Formula E's, what a great idea. Isn't it absolutely fantastic? Yeah. We've got a lot of people working there, both for Formula E and also for the teams, um, which is great. But does it flip the switches in the same way that that autosport show of drifting, noise, all the rest of it, uh, V8-powered stuff, does it flick the switches in the same way? I don't think it does. And how things go forward uh, is really quite interesting. And both 
industry, government and, and motorsport need to kind of get their head around that changing thing. So I think there's some, there's some big changes over the next few years. Um, and there is a pendulum which is going to swing. I think there is a danger that it might swing too far before it comes, comes back a little bit. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see the reaction of the I-Pace race series. Yeah, um, because that's a that's a car that people can relate to. I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and for the and and it's doing something which is relevant. I mean, you know, the early days of electrical racing almost reinforced some of those negative stereotypes of range anxiety. And that you know yeah. the car didn't do the whole race; you could out one and into another. And that changes next year. Totally. So, and you're starting. So this thing is all growing up, and the, all of the manufacturers are then beginning to line up behind yeah. it. So it will not fail. That has an impetus all to itself. They all have a vested interest in making that um, work, look good, look competitive, and they'll all be, they'll be driving it. Um, so that's, that's going to make some, some really big changes. And just watching the government struggle around diesel and you know, gold and stuff like that has, has been... Oh, what, what, what newspapers shouted loudest latest and we'll, we'll make an announcement along those lines. That's, That's the disappointing thing for me. It, yeah, it really has been. Um, and it's and, so hard for the industry. Yeah, and the work of Mike Hawes and his, his really capable team at SMMT, Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, I think they've got, um, they've got a really important job of work to do in order to help educate government as much as educate the population um, to um, help drive that narrative and ground some of the more um, uh, reactionary um, re- sort of... Well, it's being driven... It, the problem at the moment is the conversation isn't a conversation. No. It's shouting, and yeah. it's from either extreme. Yeah, indeed. And, of course and that doesn't help anybody. As with many things, the truth lies somewhere in between. Yeah. I think you're seeing that all over with global politics. So. Yes, that's <laughs> really been hammered home, I think. Yes. <laughs> OK, then, um, what currently worries you about the motion world? Yeah, well, I, I think I've probably touched on it with that. I, I worry about that pendulum swinging too far. Um, um, we, um, we aren't ready yet for the, the sorts of changes that some quarters are, um, are espousing. Uh, and I think we also aren't there yet in terms of what can be achieved and should be achieved out of existing technologies being taken to the nth degree. Um, and I, I think that that will have repercussions into our daily lives as well as motorsport and, and everything else. And that there's, there's some real risk around that too. We've just got to be a bit careful of how we get through it. Um, you know, people of influence, you know, this is our responsibility as well, is to, is to make sure that the narrative is moderated from those extremes that you were talking about. You know, yeah. Try and just drive a bit, of, a bit of sense and pragmatism into it. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you there. Uh, what has been your favourite car to drive and why was that? Um, and I've been, I've, I've been lucky enough for you to show me round and you've got some special... We do have some spe- special cars around here. Some, we, so we, it we, may not be any of these, but I mean, you've got a wide choice already. Yeah, well, I, it, yes, that sort of... Uh, the petrol head bit's pretty evident, you know, for anybody who comes and wanders around here. But it's... Part of the role of this place is to be a sort of like kids' toy box, you know, mm. so people to go, "Wow, this is amazing." Um, As uh, you said, it's to get that step out of the bed first. It is. I mean, um, I've uh, I think favourite road car. I was lucky enough to, you know, I spent a chunk of time with. Um, uh, I tend to get sort of um, aligned with Porsches, and that's uh, uh, and they are pretty well, incredible things thing to be aligned with, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they're on a, 
they're producing some absolutely extraordinary kits at the moment. They're doing some really interesting things too, the new 911T, which is, um, you know, lovely, purist kind of things. Um, but McLaren makes some extraordinary stuff at the moment. Uh, 720S is, is a preposterous car, but in terms of drive and road and everything sort of coming into one place, I think the um, 675LT in the Highlands of Scotland on the North Coast 500, that, that really <laughs> just absolutely, as a sort of bringing everything special into one place, that, that was an incredible car. 675LT is... Is, is an extraordinary car, just an amazing piece of kit. And the way that it moves around you, the way in which it makes you feel is, uh, is, is phenomenal. Um, round here though, um, favorite thing, I've got a, I've got a 1976 Carrera three liter race car. Um, and uh, that's all the 1970s racing Porsche you could ever want that thing. It's, um, <laughs> uh, it, it tries to kill you on a regular basis and it's just ace. I do absolutely love driving that. And it's, it's road legal as well, which makes it even more ridiculous. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of fun, both on road and on track. And uh, yeah, that thing around the Nürburgring, that's, that's quite a giggle, I think. <laughs> going back to the adrenaline. Uh, <laughs> what car... Oh, no, sorry, I was going to go... Uh, I've leapt ahead there. What has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? <laughs> um, now, that's really difficult. Because <laughs> you're... Because you're putting me in a very difficult place. Uh, uh, but that's why I put the why was that. So you can quantify it and then people can't feel, or companies can't feel picked on. No, well, I, I, um, uh, I'm lucky because I do get to, to drive quite a wide variety of different bits and pieces. Um, uh, there, is, uh, there is something that I thought was going to be really rubbish that, that was actually a massive surprise. And I, I've ended up with... Um, uh, with a Maserati, the 4200 GT thing, the coupe, and um, and really had very low expectations of it, and it turned out to be absolutely, it, it's just been it's just been an absolutely brilliant thing. Um, I'll get teased because that's shortly going to be for sale. <laughs> so that's probably that's a really bad example. It's a terrible car, and you shouldn't buy it, except mine, which is fab. Um, I, in terms of new cars these days, I think the joy is it's very difficult to buy a bad one. Um, everybody's making good cars the reason why you would buy brand X instead of brand Y is not actually because of the thing, they're all really good, they don't rust the dealer networks, by and large do what they say on the tin and, and will look after you modern warranties and, and expectations of longevity of the car is way beyond what you'd ever have in the past the reason why you buy brand X instead of brand Y is because of how you perceive that brand and your relationship with it and I think that's a really that's a really interesting um, bit of thinking to start getting into is why people buy, identify with, develop um, affinities for or loyalties towards certain brands. Because um, I think a lot of a lot of the new car fleet across the board is is really quite impressive. Um, we drove the Kia Stinger was was on one of uh, Donington's Troops Day um, mm-hmm. back in in December, and a, a company who simply would not have expected in that context produce something which is just a really smashing car it's just a really nice thing um, which is great um, uh, but there's plenty of stuff on the road that I hate it's normally to do with the way it's driven as opposed to the actual car okay. itself so they do anything that dawdles that fails to pull out at, at, you know, at, at, um, at junctions that hesitates at roundabouts 
that wanders on the road that uses their mobile phone and changes lanes because they're not paying attention to what they're doing. Those are the things that I do. Cars themselves, I can see good in all sorts of things. Okay. All right. That's well done. That was almost a politician's answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Uh, what car would you like to own next? Oh, um, I'm not saying will. Yeah. No, Mrs. Cameron's it, listening. This is not you telling no. the world what you're going to spend money on. Well, well I was hovering last night. With, okay, so eBay last night considered looking at VRX8s going, God, they're, quite, they're quite cheap now, aren't they? <laughs> and then a dangerous Monaro's are really cheap because um, they're fantastic things. Last week I decided that, that a Mustang was the perfect thing because we all need... We all need one of those, just a ridiculous, ridiculous car. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm really lucky. I mean, I'm hovering over, you know, a Land Rover that was a bargain. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I've got one. I've got, I've got that, and I've got a 1971 Range Rover that's just a joy, uh, suffix A, one of the first 2000 ever built. And I'm hovering over a Series 3, because I'm... I love Series 3s, that's what I used to have. You a V8 in it, you could put a naught on the end then. Oh, yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, at least, at least. So mine's got a V8 in it, it's, it should be there already. But um, we'd lock it up. Yeah. So I don't know, I think I'm probably at capacity for, for cool cars, but um, uh, the V10 M5, I think, that's going to happen. It's going to be one of those. My E39 M5 I absolutely adored and missed it daily ever since. Um, I swapped it for a C43 AMG Estate because I needed the space and foolishly thought that the Mercedes equivalent of the M5 would be comparable and it had a very nice boot. Okay. (laughs) Uh, What is your favourite road to drive on? Uh, The Nürburgring. Um, without a shadow of a doubt, because you'll claim that as a road. So, I mean, yes, I've, I've, okay. been, I've been going out to the, road, to the ring for a long time. Um, I've, uh, I've been fortunate enough to get to drive all sorts of things around there in all sorts of different contexts, and I, I adore it. Um, and the fact that Spa, which is such an incredible circuit as well, is so close to it. There's a, there's a bit of the Ardennes into the Eiffel, which is, which is a part of the country, which is a part of the world which I really love. Um, but I must admit, my commute... Um, because uh, I live... Is this the commute with the Range Rover? Because I've seen pictures on Twitter of that. Yeah, there's, there's okay. different versions. So I've got, a, <laughs> I've got about seven different routes that I can take. So it's about 22 miles door-to-door um, for me to get into. That's a Mission Motorsport. And it's some of, some of the most fantastic roads in the UK. And there's also some routes that involve byways. And, and there's one that involves just sticking your thumb up your bum and going up a dirty great dual carriageway and then onto an A-road and then hooking the other way when you, you just... If, if I'm on the phone, on hands-free, and I'm just having a conversation with somebody and I just you know want to do that, then I can do that without losing mobile phone signal all the way. <laughs> or I go the more direct route and my phone can't ring, I can't be disturbed, all the rest of it. And it's a bit of escapism at the beginning, at the end of the day. And um, I'm lucky enough and someone wants to use a 1973 9-11 as a daily... And even when, you know, you can be quite burdened with things, you go and climb in the car and go and drive down these fantastic roads and emerge at the other end just in a different frame of mind. And that's using the automobile as, a, uh, as something which genuinely contributes towards your quality of life. Yeah, yeah. I remember used to, I used to do that when I had a commute. That yeah. I found that yeah. a bad day could be Mitigated. put to one side. Yeah. Absolutely. 
I mean, there's lots of there, there's there's lots of things that contribute towards your quality of life, you know. And actually, we talked about one of them, Dave the dog. You know, Dave's properly bored now, so I'm not sure if he agrees. But you know, uh, for those who who do that kind of thing, dogs are really important, and the ability to um, you know, uh, have one of those in your life is something that genuinely contributes towards a, a general, a much more general sense of well-being because we're quite complicated beasts and we need quite a lot. That Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, if you start adding dogs, Wi-Fi, and uh, <laughs> and bacon butties to it, you know, it's uh, it's quite a complex thing. Um, yeah, Dave's part of that, and a decent commute home is one of them. Okay, right then, uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to experience? <laughs> Um, anything which parks for you okay. I, I, I hate that in fact modern cars this is a pet hate of mine uh, I'm lucky enough that I, we, we're supported by some manufacturers who, who help out with the day to day fleet at Mission Motorsport so while I, I'll do my commute and all the rest of it in my collection of old nonsense if I'm going along to meetings or I'm travelling on, on uh, business reasons then, generally speaking, being something nice and modern. And there's a whole lot of stuff about modern cars which really irritate me, particularly when you put it up against the 1970s thing that I might have driven to work in. And it's fat A-pillars driven by um, legislation, which is all about dropping a car on its roof, but I'm certain contributes to lots of motorcyclists getting hit every year. It's all of the bits of the car that are designed for the bloke who didn't pay for it, pedestrian protection, um, uh, bonnets that sort of pop up which add weight and which drive cars to look similar because of they're all driven around you know the hard ports being covered and therefore everything starts to look hom- homogenous and, and the same yeah, they've got to be set at a minimum distance and all that sort of it's stuff the, that has to go on the, angles and you're sitting lower and progressively lower and lower within within side protection bars that, that, that destroy your view out of the vehicle and then all of the things which are therefore brilliant reasons of logic and convenience and safety, but which add up to allowing humans to do all of the worst bits of human nature and become lazy and rubbish at it. So, and I really worry that my kids are going to drive in cars that they don't bother to do that motorcyclist look over the shoulder um, check because they're, they're used to having a wing mirror that will tell you if there's somebody in your blind spot. Um, that the they don't pay that much attention to what lane they're in because they're used to the steering wheel, which will vibrate if you wander too much, and therefore they don't bother paying too much attention because the car will look after them. And all of those things, because we're soft and human and squidgy, even if we don't want to, we'll find ourselves unconsciously leaning on more and more and more. We're actually becoming worse as drivers. Mm -hmm. And we are... All of the things which are designed to help driver attention ultimately don't because you're required to do less and less. And as you get required to do less and less you start to want to do other things more and more or you get bored and you doze off well if we'd spent a fraction of the money that has been spent on all the safety and extra stuff on driver training oh. we wouldn't probably need no indeed most and, of it. and I uh, and, and as an arts instructor that's the training piece is something that's really close to my heart well, you see lots of people in racing do it and you know and all of those layers of track days and all the rest of it is the money people will wax on their cars or whatever it might be um, in order to go that tiny bit faster instead of just getting a little bit of instruction themselves. It's always interesting though because blokes are much worse at it than, than ladies. Girls always tend to take instruction much better. 
because they come without any of the ego that uh, the blokes do about driving because we're all awesome at it. <laughs> um, right, penultimate question now. Uh, who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Really, I think there's some really interesting people around there in, in sort of car culture at the moment. But um, a bloke who's well worth having a chat with is Rich Tipper, Perfection Valet. Mm -hmm. I hate cleaning cars. <laughs> I'm rubbish at it. I either try and get Romanians to do it or I don't do it at all for as long as I possibly can, which drives, which drives other people nuts because they see the state, some things turn up, and then grudgingly I'll then go and do it. Um, I absolutely can't stand anybody who at any stage has polished half of a car, made a line, taken a photo of it, discussed paint depths and all the rest of it. I cannot abide all of that. I'm sorry, Rich, if you're listening. It's nonsense. <laughs> Except it isn't, which is really annoying. Because <laughs> the difference that, that those really good guys make and actually their understanding of the science behind it all is, is extraordinary. But Rich is a really... Is a really interesting guy because um, he is so professional at it. Um, he is an utter petrol head through and through. You know, he drives a he drives a Cayman R, um, and is is just a monster, monster petrol head. But because of his clientele, he also gets to be around and see and experience some really cool cars and stuff and all the rest of it. And I think his I'm always fascinated by his sort of view of the industry and also car culture and the way in which things are going. I think Rich has got a, a real unique insight into it because of the nature of the, the, the circles in which he moves and the people with which he gets to do. So this is by no means a... Um, uh, th this is not me endorsing uh, polishing as an activity. <laughs> Just to make that clear. I absolutely <laughs> abhor it in all of its levels. Um, uh, apart from the stuff that Rich does, which is utterly mega. But no, Rich is... Oh, he's an interesting chap. <laughs> He's ace. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's absolutely ace. And I, and I cannot, cannot um, uh, fault the work that he does because it, it is, it's extraordinary that he will take something. It's particularly, actually, stuff that's interesting for him is that, you know, the whole paint protection of a new car stuff, all the rest of it. Okay. But it's something that's properly aged. And it's all the bits that you just think, you know, you open the bonnet of an older car, all the rest of it, and, uh, and it looks like an older car underneath and all of the, the things which go with it and suspension, the detail that they go into in order to make something look literally like it's just come out of the factory is incredible. It's unbelievable that they can get something back to um, looking as good as it does. And, uh, but that, that implies a whole level of patience and attention to detail I wholly lack. Simply <laughs> don't have that. So. Okay, well, I will add him to the list of badgering. Yeah, definitely. Um, right, so last question before I say thank you very much. Uh, and that is, what are the best ways for people to follow what you do or if they uh, feel they can help uh, Mission Motorsport in some way? Yeah, um, well, they, we've got a, a website, missionmotorsport.org, which, is, which is, is pretty good. I think it's, it's due probably an update during the course of this year. But as everything, websites are relatively more difficult to stay right on top of the currency of what you're doing. Social media is the place to go and do that. And Mission Motorsport, you'll find on Facebook, um, Mission Motor SPT, all one word, Mission Motor SPT, truncated because the Twitter names are only allowed to be so long. Um, on Twitter, is continually sending interesting sort of bits and pieces out there. Uh, there's an Instagram account, which has got some, some nice photos and stuff which go on there. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, I guess I'm out there as well, you know, sort of tank slided, only showing you the things which, which look cool. And none the of positive the spin on your life. Oh, yeah, which is... Which because is social, social media is a lie. It's a total lie. <laughs> so if you would like to see... If you would like to see what my wife thinks I do at work, <laughs> go, and, go and look at my social media account. The actual reality, the actual reality, no one would really be interested in looking at. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll have links in the show notes to that so people can click through uh, and see all that. But thank you so much for the time uh, that you've given me and for allowing me to uh, inhabit a corner of your, of your uh, properties here. And thank you so much for what you do with the charity and everything. I think it's a, I think it's a, a fantastic organization i think you're doing a fantastic job uh, and being at the race remembrance actually allowed me to see up close what it means to people who've gone through that's it um, and uh, i think if people really want to kind of understand what we do get yourself along to a mission motorsport event because um it, it's that tangible seeing it firsthand meeting people and understanding something of their stories that's what what truly brings it to life and it's the thing that keeps me interested, so uh, and I have a famously short attention, attention span. Okay, well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Cheers, Andy. Thanks once again to James for coming on Rearview, chatting with me, and letting me visit Mission Motorsport. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. And thank you to Mercedes-Benz Vans for helping make Rearview on Tour happen. To see more about the Vito Tour I used to visit the guests, click the link in the show notes. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearViewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you would like to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at the Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great guests who come on here. So until next time, that was James Cameron. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.